Would you turn me your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 3? Uh, last week we talked about you and God, that God has created you for a purpose, and uh, part of that goal is to find and follow that purpose. But secondly, we want to look at the issue of guilt. Uh, somebody once said guilt is the gift that keeps on giving, and uh, it's a bigger factor in people's lives, and there's a lot of things that kind of grow out of struggling with the issue of guilt, and so that's what we want to focus on today. In fact, we want to begin by reading the first 19 verses of chapter 3, which is really where guilt started. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read this passage together? Verse 1 begins this way in chapter 3 of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And the woman said, I will greatly, and to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children, and your desire will be to your, for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we reflect on this passage we have just read, that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding and perspective but most important, Lord, the ability to apply truths to our life in a way that makes sense. We know that our life with you is, is not only an experience of salvation, but it's also a journey. And we pray, God, that you would help us to walk it effectually. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we talked about how that God created this planet and everything in it in, in perfect oneness and unity, that it was a place that not only was beautiful, but it was also a place that was designed to nurture and to sustain the center of God's creative plan, and that was mankind. In fact, it was so good that he said to the man when he put him in it, he said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth, subdue it and rule over it. But suddenly we find when we get into chapter 3 that this same place that was so idyllic now had become dangerous and deadly. And I think to myself, how many times over the years I've heard somebody say, everything was great until... And they have some different until. They have until I lost my job, or until my health failed, or until the diagnosis came in, or until my husband or my wife left, or until my son or my daughter came to me and said, Mom, Dad, I'm gay, or I'm Q, or something of that nature, that something happens in their life that suddenly translates their existence from one of goodness to not-so-goodness that instead of feeling worshipful, they become worrisome about every moment of their life. And often the question comes up, what happened? How could something that is so good turn out to be so bad? The fact of the matter is that this chapter tells us two things happened. The first one is it introduces us to a personality called the tempter. In fact, that's what the word, the word, the name devil means. The word, uh, the word uh, Satan means accuser. Uh, he's also known as Lucifer. He has these different light, the, the light of the morning or the morning star, which may have been his biblical name or his heavenly name. But essentially, it tells us that there's this personality with great power in the universe, a one of angelic being who is the adversary of mankind. He is in an adverse relationship with humanity and does everything in his power to hurt and to harm and to hinder us with regards to not only God but our existence. You might say that he hates God and he hates everything that is made in God's image and likeness. The other factor is temptation. In other words, not only do we have a tempter, but we have a vulnerability towards temptation. We often refer to man's fallen, sinful nature. And what that is, is a predisposition towards things that we know are contrary to the will of God. And this creates a huge dilemma in the life of most people, particularly Christians. You know, before I was a Christian, I had a consciousness of not being perfect, but I didn't really perceive myself as being evil. But after I became a Christian, I realized that there's this pernicious side of me that I don't like to acknowledge or even admit to. That Paul put it really simply when writing to the Romans in chapter 7, he said, there's the good that I know to do, and I even want to do it, but so often I find myself doing the opposite. So the problem isn't a lack of information, it's something on the inside of me that says, along with the foolish woman in Proverbs, stolen waters are sweet. What is it about human nature that looks at things that the Bible says don't touch, and we find ourselves wanting to touch it? You know, it's kind of like someone saying to you, I'm going to introduce you to my friend, and he has a giant mold on the end of his nose, he's very sensitive about it, and whatever you do, don't stare at it. 
you know what's going to happen. I mean, you're you're going to laser in on that thing and just stare at it. You can't help it because suddenly it's been brought into your perspective. And the same thing is kind of true about things that are forbidden, things that we know that God says, don't do this. And that proclivity, that, that orientation, that tendency that we have in ourselves is what makes us incredibly vulnerable to the temptations that the tempter brings into our life. And what we're going to talk about today is how that works in a very practical and specific way. Because one of the things that Satan has figured out, he doesn't need new bait. What he's got works. When I used to fly fish a lot, I had a certain handful of flies that I used on every stream I ever came on because I found that they were sure fire. In fact, one of them was cleverly called surefire. And so the thing was, you used it because you knew it worked. Well, Satan doesn't have to come up with new ideas on how to entrap us or to get us caught up in his lair. He has been doing the same thing from the beginning. So what he does with Adam and Eve, he does with you and I with great regularity and sometimes with just as much success. But we'll talk about that further in a moment. Because what I want to focus on, first of all, is who is this malevolent personality called the devil? Well, as I said, we have a couple of passages, particularly in the Old Testament, that really kind of explore who he is in detail. They kind of explode his image, both in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. In fact, Ezekiel 28 begins by telling us that he was the anointed cherub, a guardian cherub, which basically means covering or an angel who was around the throne of God. There are only three names of angels given in the Bible, actually. Some people have seven different names for angels, but there's only three that are mentioned in the Bible. One is Michael, one is Gabriel, and the third one is Lucifer. They're often called archangels because they represent or really kind of service the purposes of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Lucifer is this one who was apparently assigned to the will of the Father, and he desired to become the Father. In fact, Ezekiel says that he was blameless until wickedness was found in you. And he goes on to say, your heart became proud on account of your beauty and corrupted because of your splendor. Isaiah goes on further to say, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And then Ezekiel again goes on and says uh, that he was filled with violence. And he said, You sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, I expelled you, and you have been cast down to the earth. Essentially what God did is he humiliated Lucifer, but Lucifer did not respond by humbling himself. Now that's not an unusual dynamic, it's something that you and I battle with all the time. First of all, there's nothing we hate more than being humiliated, right? Anybody like being humiliated? I mean, it's not something that anybody volunteers for. We will avoid what we see as a possibly humiliating experience by simply being someplace else. But the whole point is that God, in order to humble us, often has to humiliate us. And the best thing we can do when we have been embarrassed by something in ourselves is just to simply humble ourselves in the sight of God because He makes a promise. If you humble yourself, I will lift you back up. 
But Lucifer goes the opposite direction, as people often do. Instead of being humbled, he arrogates himself to rebellion against God. He sets out to destroy everything and anything that God loves. And of course, that means that you and I have been targeted to be tarnished and to be destroyed because we essentially are the apple of God's eye. God looks at mankind and contrary to popular thought, doesn't look at us and say, I'm so disgusted with you creatures because you're so evil and all the rest, but rather God yearns over us the same way we do with our own children. There's nothing more beautiful than a small child, and we see the beauty of that child. God looks at us as His children, and He yearns over us with that same heart, that same compassion. In fact, the very reason that we can understand that illustration is because God has put the same thing in our hearts that exists within His heart. So any good, virtuous thing that you can see in your heart, you have to understand that came from God. He implanted that in you so that you might engage in fellowship with Him. But so what did Satan do? How did he respond? What kind of approach does he take? It's interesting because Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.11, he said that Satan might not outwit us or literally outsmart us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, honestly, I read that and I think, who's the we you're talking about there? I find myself becoming unaware or clueless about Satan's machinery in my life all the time. I fall for his tricks repeatedly. I am, sadly, a slow learner. But the simple thing, as I said in the beginning, is he doesn't come up with any new things, new schemes, because the old schemes work really well. So what we find identified in this chapter is three different things, three different schemes, I call them, that he uses against us as he used with Adam and Eve. The very first one is accusation. He's the accuser of the brethren, the book of Revelation says, and you and I understand that. He accuses us before God. In fact, the book of Job opens the first two chapters with Satan accusing Job to God and saying, basically, the guy isn't what he pretends to be. He's insincere. He's a phony. He only follows you because you bless him. Job proved otherwise through his own endurance, but the simple fact was that this is what he does. He brings accusation, and where he begins in our story is he accuses God of being ungodlike. Listen to how it reads. He begins by asking you a very provocative question. Did God say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the tree, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And right then the serpent responds is by saying, you surely will not die. And he goes on, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here are the two accusations, if I could summarize them. Number one, he's basically saying, God can't be trusted. Don't rely upon him. God is not reliable. You can't believe everything that God says to you. And so you need to be wary. Well, in life, there's only one of two choices. You can either trust God or you can trust yourself. 
Now, just an odd guess, which one of the two you think is more trustworthy? The simple fact is we know that God is the most trustworthy, but do we not struggle with thoughts, can I trust God? Especially when God gives you a directive and you don't like the direction of the directive, then suddenly you're going, I don't know if I want to do this because what if I trust God and it doesn't turn out well? Anybody else have that battle going on in their head? Please don't make me out here. Don't leave me hanging, bro. <laughs> I mean, that's, that is what we go through. And we have to understand that distrust finds its origin in Satan. It isn't just simply a matter of your weak faith. It's what Satan tries to convince us of on a regular basis. Don't take the Bible seriously because if you really follow it, you're going to end up in a compound in Waco, Texas, or something like that. Something really bizarre is going to happen. And, and so you don't want to do that. You don't want to take God's Word seriously. He can't be trusted. But secondly, he implies that disobeying God is better than obeying God. There's more benefit to being disobedient to God than being obedient. Again, how many of us have thought that? How many times we've come and thought, if I do that, it's going to cost me this, and I'm going to lose that, and this could happen, and we begin to even imagine negative consequences. And the whole thing is, what happens? We end up choosing to do the thing that we know God says, don't touch that, don't go there. But instead, we do it anyway because we think that there's more benefit to what we're doing. So you look at Christians all the time who fall into all sorts of bad choices and, 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 and terrible consequences, and we say to ourselves, what were they thinking? And I can tell you exactly what they are thinking. Number one, they weren't sure they could trust God. Number two, they concluded erroneously that disobeying God was probably a better deal for them personally than being obedient to God. To understand that is key right from the beginning because this is a conversation that the enemy is going to have with you in the confines of your own private head on a regular basis. And more often than not, we find ourselves becoming manipulated by it. But the second scheme that he uses is basically temptation. And see, here's where I think... Uh, one more point I'll go back to real quickly before I talk about temptation. Uh, in second service, I get off my notes and then I just go afield. But <laughs> the thing I think is really important is that Satan didn't outright lie, outright lie to Adam and Eve. What he did is he told them a half-truth. And what is a half-truth? Well, half a truth plus half a truth equals a lie. One of the things that God says to us is that no man tells the truth. In other words, all men are liars. And why would God say something mean like that? Well, part of the problem is that when I look at a situation, I only see what I can see. So I see somebody doing something, and I interpret their actions based upon what I can see, but I only have half the truth. I don't have the other half of the truth, which is what their perspective of it is. And so when we judge things, we often judge them incorrectly. But what Satan, how he told them a half a lie was simply this. It was true that if they ate the fruit, they would have the knowledge of good and evil. They got that. The half-truth was in the fact that they wouldn't have the power to consistently do the good, nor the power to avoid the evil. And that became the catch. Yeah, you have knowledge now, but you don't have any, tr any power to deal with what you know. And that's where the trap comes in. 
So what he does is, is he sets this up, then he begins to present the temptation. And there's an re- interesting uh, triad here in the way that Satan tempts him because basically he, she, he, he has her look at the food and she looks at it with her eyes and he said, you know, that looks like it's something really desirous to eat. Beyond that, secondly, she says, you know, it's something that uh, I see could really enhance my life and it's pleasing to my eyes. And thirdly, she says, it will make me wise. It's interesting to me because when we look at places like Matthew 4, we find the same pattern. That when he begins with Eve, he says, I'm going to stimulate your lust. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, he says there are three things that cause sin in our lives. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. When Jesus is tempted by Satan, we find those same three things working as well. Because first of all, when we talk about lust, what we're talking about is being pleasure-oriented or appetite-driven in our lives. That's the most basic way in which a person can, or level upon which a person can live their life is basically be driven by their appetites. And I call it simply my wants. I want what I want. We live in a culture that seeks to stimulate that to a heightened level so that we become mindless consumers. But we find that that's the same thing that the devil did with Jesus. He came to Jesus and he said, you know, you're pretty hungry now, 40 days, no food, you should be pretty hungry. You can speak to this bread and you can make, or this rock, and you can make it into bread. In other words, you can place your needs above God's will for your life. The second thing is, as Eve looked at that fruit, she said, man, I see it, it's pleasing to my sight. It's something that is desirous to me, and I have it within my power to make it happen, and it comes to the issue of my will. And then thirdly, she looks at it and says, it could make me wise, which essentially, being wise is a pursuit of pride, that I want to be wiser than everyone else. I want to be as wise as God Himself. And that means that I begin to set my way for my life. And when you boil it all down, here's what it really comes down to for you and me. That basically, the way I want to live my life is the way I want my life to be. You have a want for your future. Humans are interesting because we're the only creature on the planet that actually thinks about the future. My dog never anticipates tomorrow. He lives in the moment, right? And that's the way all creation is. But man has this ability to look into the future, and we, as a consequence, want certain things. I want my life to be this way. Every one of us does it. We have different particulars, but we want our life to be a certain way. But secondly, I want it to come to pass the way I will that it will come to pass. In other words, I want to have the power to control the pathways of my life. I don't often like the paths that God has. And then thirdly, I want it to be the way that I want it to be, not the way that often God wants to be. So that, as my friend Stanley Volk used to say, he said that with God, the way up is the way down. Someone else said that God's mobility is not upward mobility, it's downward mobility. Scripture says over and over again, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. There's not a single one of us in this room who embraces the idea of humility. 
I don't think anybody by nature is humble. I think it's a gift from God or else it's something that God brings us to, but we don't naturally do it. So that when it comes to the, the, the progress of your life, you have your life the way you have a, a path that you want it to go down. You have it to unfold in a way that you want it to unfold and you want it to be something that's conforming to what you dream about your own self. And that's why last week we talked about the idea that God, first of all, owns you. He created you for His purpose, and He has a purpose He wants you to fill. It's not about you. Satan came in and sought to undermine that whole thing by getting them to take their eyes off of God and following Him and beginning to follow their own hearts. He really induced them to do what he did, self-deification. Essentially, he invites them to go down the same path that he went down to with the same consequences. Because in the end, he's going to be not only separated from God, but cast into the bottomless pit. So here it is with his schemes. The first thing he wants to do is get us to be tempted and yield to that temptation. Or excuse me, the first thing he wants to do is say that God is not reliable. Secondly, he wants us to yield to temptation. But that brings me to the third one, and that's separation. The third scheme is to separate us, first of all, from God. And how does he do that? He does that by making us guilty. Guilty. Now, guilt is something that we tend to misunderstand. Uh, guilt is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. Guilt is a fact. It's a forensic truth. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, all of us are guilty. And so as a consequence, we may not feel emotionally bad because there's all sorts of people who do bad things, but they don't feel bad about it. In fact, I heard a comment about a serial killer recently where simply the psychologist said, he's not mentally ill, he's evil. He doesn't feel bad about it. When you talk about sociopathic personalities, they don't go to bed feeling bad about having done evil and bad things to people. They sleep like babies because they have no sense of their own guilt. So guilt, in a sense, is a great gift, but it's also the gift that sometimes keeps on giving. But what happens is the moment they transgressed, they became guilty of sin, and that brought separation from God. It's interesting to try to understand how this happened because the Scriptures don't inform us how they, sin began to take over their life. All it simply implies is that this kind of thing became part of who they were. In fact, later on in Psalm 51, David would say, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So sin seems to be something that's inherent within human nature. It's part of our DNA. It's almost like somehow it lay dormant in an activity, like a recessive gene or something, and when they disobeyed God, it went from being inactive to being active, from unexpressed to expressed. The best way I can illustrate it is getting a callus on your hand. You know, um, if you don't do hard work with your hands, or, or if you don't wear gloves, or if you wear gloves, you probably aren't going to have a lot of calluses. Because the simple fact is that the thing that causes your hand to callous lies dormant until it is stimulated and then suddenly it develops those calluses and it becomes a layers of hard dead skin. 
in a way, sin is similar to that. It, if you stimulate it, the harder you become and the further you become and less sensitive you become to the touch of God on your life. So when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, suddenly this thing became active in them. And here again, not only did they know good and evil, but they also came to discover that they had an attraction to the evil that they now were familiar with. The result was they were separated from the very source of life itself. And it's like a new player now took control of their life. In fact, Paul, in writing to Timothy, said in 2 Timothy 2.26, he said that we should pray that God would deliver people who have been entrapped by the devil, who have been taken captive by him to do his will. In fact, he used the phrase that they might come to their senses. The same term he used or phrases he used with the prodigal son, that he might come to his senses. One day he came to his senses as he's living amongst the pigs and said, even the slaves in my father's house have it better than this. So essentially what Satan does by that convincing us into sin is he's slowly taking greater and greater captivity over a person's life. Many of you know from personal experience what that feels like. Many of you have had that experience where you begin to dabble in something and then you begin to involve yourself and it took you deeper and deeper and deeper until it became, as we often like to say today, an addiction. And I don't mean just to drugs or alcohol, but it can be addiction to a whole variety of things where suddenly you no longer control it. You can sit down and say, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done with this. And the next thing you know, you've gone right back. You're like, as the scripture says, the dog returning to his vomit. And unlike the dog, you're looking at vomit and saying, I'm eating vomit right now. And there's a self-loathing that begins to take place in your life. But simply, he understood that if he could get man to do that, he would gain power and control over man's behavior. And as soon as that seed of sin was sown, it grew into something vicious and viral and toxic and destructive. Because here's something many people don't realize about the human organism. Your body was not created to have sin in it. As soon as sin infects us, it begins to destroy us. In fact, in Proverbs, Solomon said, do not be overmuch wicked, for why should you perish before your time? In other words, we hear about these people who are living these wild 